live. Okay, in theory, uh, we should be live again. So hey, everyone, welcome to Open Space at a non-standard time again. Uh, my guest today is Jason Derleth from NASA's Innovative Advanced Co Concepts, also known as NIAC. And yeah. I have been uh, wanting to do an interview with the folks at NIAC for a long time. And if you don't know what NIAC is, I promise, I guarantee you're going to want to listen to this conversation. It is, you're going to, suddenly everything will make a ton of sense when you think about the kinds of stories that we talk about here on, on my channel. So Jason, uh, welcome to, uh, to my channel. Welcome to Open Space. Thank you, Fraser. I really appreciate uh, the interview. Uh, so, so tell everyone who you are and, and what you do. So I get the best job at NASA headquarters. I think the, the engineers out at the centers have more fun than me, but, but um, at headquarters, there can't be a better job than this. I get to run the agency's most advanced technology development program for mostly space concepts, but also aeronautics as well. And so the NASA Innovative Advanced Concepts, NIAC, is a very small program, a total of about $8.5 million in a good year. And we are sort of I like to think of us as the venture capitalists of NASA or the DARPA of NASA, sort of. Uh, we look at stuff that's 10 or more years from use and uh, we give people a small amount of money, $125,000 over nine months to do uh, engineering analysis of a new idea to see if it would make sense. And the best ones can come back for a $500,000 grant over two years. And, and now, just this year, we have a phase three, which is $2 million over two years. And so we expect some pretty good hardware to come out of the phase three, uh, reducing risk for possible future use for some of the most risky concepts. So we look at the high payoff high risk concepts. So uh, can you give people a sense of like, what are some of the things that we're now fairly familiar with ideas that were originally made their way through the NIAC <laughs> pipeline? Because um, sure. there's been so many amazing ideas. Oh, thanks. Um, I'll, I'll do my best. I, I have memory of most of this program. So NIAC was actually canceled back in 2006 with the last studies wrapping up in 07. And then we restarted it in, in 2011, thank goodness. Uh, I think NASA without NIAC is not, not as exciting. I, I do believe that. Uh, so one of the neat ideas is probably um, exploring other planetary systems. You've probably talked about Breakthrough Starshot on your show. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And Breakthrough Starshot actually originated from, well, Bob Forward had a, a Dr. Forward had a, a science fiction uh, story about it. And um, it was proposed to us by uh, Dr. Philip Lubin out of the University of Santa Barbara, University of California, Santa Barbara. And he said that if you took a chipset, something even smaller than a cell phone, and put a one meter sort of reflector, solar reflector on it, and then shone a whole bunch of lasers on it at really high power, you could go from zero to almost 0.3 C, so one third the speed of light almost in about 10 minutes. And the math worked out. I'm not sure that your even a chipset is going to survive that amount of G load, but, but uh, it, at that speed, you might be able to get data back from Alpha Centauri in 20 years or so. And, and, you know, as he did his technical study, he slowed it down just a little bit down to 0.2 C. And he was approached by Yuri Milner uh, during his phase one study to, to help start Breakthrough Starshot. So that was a, yeah. a really good one that went through. Um, yeah. Uh, one of the other ones that I can think of is the the star shade, the, uh, yeah. you know, the big yeah. petal shaped sunshade that's been yeah. proposed for future missions like HabX and maybe even to go with the James Webb. Um, that's right. There have been uh, balloon, oh, sorry, there's been balloon concepts for Venus, rover concepts mm -hmm. for Venus. There's been um, uh, an, an elevator, a space elevator on the moon proposed. Uh, Actually, uh, the first space elevator that was taken seriously came out of the NIAC program. Uh, before the NIAC program came out, the people had sort of laughed at it. But after a feasibility study showed that it might actually work and there was a place on the Earth where you could do that, you know, NASA's even had uh, centennial challenges to see if uh, climbing rovers could climb up. 
uh, quite a ways and stuff. So that, that came out of the first NASA innovate, uh, NASA Institute for Advanced Concepts, which started in 97 and went to 2006. So, so those are the kinds of ideas. I mean, if, yeah. if someone ever figures out a warp drive, it's going to come from probably it's going to come through the NIAC, one of these NIAC funded mm -hmm. projects, you know? Um, yeah. So now, you know, here we are, you said, you know, the, I, I know um, it, it had been running, it got shut down in 2007, started again in 2011, and has been running fairly continuously up until right. now. So what yep. is sort of the, what is the typical cycle? Like right now, where we stand today, how many projects are in various phases of, of NIAC right now? So we have, um, I'm not sure exactly, I think 12 phase ones going. And we have um, seven phase twos that are in their first year, eight that are in their second year, and two that are in two phase threes. So our normal load is a little higher on, on the phase ones, maybe 16 phase ones, and um, around seven phase twos each year, and then one phase three. So that's, that's what we normally get. Um, and we get quite a number of proposals every year between two and 300 for those wow. 16th. Yeah. It's a, it's a rough, uh, uh, rough few weeks for us to respond to those effectively and fairly. We try as best as we can to, to spend time on each and every one to understand what it's being, what, what is being proposed and whether or not they can do the work and all of that. Um, and that solicitation has been opening in the early fall up until this year but i believe next year we have been given the go ahead to change our schedule uh, and pull it back to the beginning of summer so i think we'll have the solicitation released in june this this coming year and so what is the process so you're mm -hmm. i mean you have to be an american person or company and uh, actually you can be a foreign national legally in the united states and working in the united states so long as your your money isn't coming from one of the uh, restricted countries. Okay. I, yeah. So uh, if you're not on the restricted countries list, if you're not receiving money from the restricted right. countries list, you could even be a student in a university uh, from um, right. anywhere. And, and so, as long as you're legally here. And so what are the, like, what is the sure. process? I mean, are you putting out a request for proposals for specific yes. kinds of things like you're saying we want to understand you know right. we want some methods of propulsion we want some new construction methods we want or are you just saying just tell mm -hmm. us your great ideas and yeah. we'll categorize it as we see fit much more the latter than the former we have a little bit of a stress for the current exploration of the moon listed in our current solicitation but it's very soft we ask you know right now uh, there is a push to go back to the moon, but we still don't know where innovation comes from. You know, if we knew what innovation was, if, if anyone knew what innovation was, well, they'd be billionaires and, and um, they'd have lots of books sold and everything. I think the fact that there are dozens of books on the shelves uh, about what innovation is and each one is sort of contradictory means we don't really know yeah. what innovation is until we see it and then, oh, that's innovative. So since we don't know, uh, we don't ask for any particular areas like propulsion or anything like that, although we do get quite a few propulsion concepts every year. Um, one of my favorites is a, um, a telescope that w we got that isn't a space telescope, but it is a space telescope. It's really kind of freaky. The, the person um, su suggested that we could take a weather balloon and put another small balloon inside of it and illuminize half of that balloon. And in radio frequencies, uh, they go right through the mylar. Um, it's very thin anyway. And so you can fly this weather balloon up to the edge of space and above well more than 99% of the atmosphere, and especially the water lines that tend to block the radio waves. I'm not an astronomer, so I could yeah. get some of the details wrong. Um, but essentially, you're in space with a balloon uh, instead of a giant space telescope. And he actually won an, uh, a follow-on award from the science mission directorate, not the space technology mission directorate, but the science mission directorate that flies all of the science missions uh, to actually fly one of these balloons, a small prototype, but still a fairly large. I think he's going to have a two-meter mirror up in space, and it's all based on a NIAC. So um, we do stuff that's a little closer in, 10 years or so from, from original proposal. Uh, so 
No, we don't have any particular areas. That's the answer to your question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's I, it's hard not to totally rabbit hole on yeah. on these different ideas, and I, I will yeah. I I guarantee I'm going to do the same thing. I'm sure I will talk about stingray shaped um, airships that could be flying around on Venus. Um, oh, don't worry, I did a, I just did a video about it. It's going to be coming out in in a day, so you know you don't have to oh, worry. Oh, cool. Everyone. Yeah, um, that's a fun one. Uh, yeah, super cool. Um, then and so so people have a have an idea you have this period where there's a request for proposals and then people will submit and and so how many proposals will you receive so we actually are very aware that it takes a lot of work to propose to the government for a grant and so we try and lighten the load as much as possible uh, we ask for a three-page white paper now that three-page white paper has to be in the correct format and it has to go into the government systems. So you have to be registered with the government systems and all of that. Um, but once you've got that down, three pages isn't too hard to write about something that's really uh, fun and interesting, we hope. And what we do with those three pages is in the program office, we look at each one and decide whether or not it's in scope for the program because we're not allowed to do piece parts or widgets or a good example would be there are a lot of really interesting and really good new metamaterials that are being built and people will propose to us and say we will go into the laboratory and we will build a metamaterial with a following lithography process and then we will come and we will test it until it fails a crash test and or whatever sort of destructive test we you know they they propose <laughs> and then there will be this new material that people can use <clears throat> we take the C in NIAC pretty seriously. So we, um, we ask people to take their widgets and show NASA, show everyone in the aerospace community why you would want to do this thing. And so don't tell us about your material right. so much, but tell us how that material would make a mission better. And so pick a mission, whether that's, uh, you know, entry, descent, and landing at Mars for a robotic lander, or if it's, uh, you know, cleaning the air for humans in a, in a human cabin while the cabin is going to Mars, or if it's uh, spelunking into Jupiter's atmosphere or exploring one of the icy moons, whatever the mission is, you can make that up. Uh, as long as it's in the realm of possibility for NASA to look at in the future. And then show us how your new material or your new widget or your new actuator, whatever it is, is going to either make that new mission possible or greatly improve an existing mission by an order of magnitude or more, or make a current planned mission or a possible future mission less expensive. That's one that I, I like right. to see as well. So uh, if you're, you know, an order of magnitude less expensive, well, eventually maybe that Dysonian sphere will be possible or whatever it is that you're proposing. Right. Yeah. So, um, so then, okay. So, so then you get several hundred proposals, yeah, two to 300 proposals, two to 300 proposals. And we then turn those around in four weeks to six weeks okay. and invite a full proposal from about 75 to 110. It depends on the year, however many good ideas we have. And the full proposal is you add on another five pages. You, you keep the first three right. and the five pages are more of a work plan. And um, you know, what, what's your, who are your people going to be? How are you going to complete the work? How much money is each step going to cost? Are you going to, is, is the amount of work that you're proposing commensurate or, or appropriate for the amount of money that you'll be getting, that sort of thing. We've had people propose, oh yeah, and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll bring you a prototype of the um, human-sized rover at the end of nine months with 125,000. No, you won't, no. I'm sorry, you're not going to be able to do that. It'd be great if you could, but yeah. no, you can't do that. And, you know, what we're looking for in the end is really a piece of research that can be put up on the shelf. And we put them up on the shelf. Yeah. Unlike other programs, we actually take a final report that is more than a couple of pages long. We actually ask for sort of a full technical debrief of what you did. Um, 
and then we take that and put it online. Yeah, and thing. you know, can confirm. Uh, again, many of the videos that I've done here on my channel use are either use one of those reports as the anchor or or feed into that. And the the reports are very readable, very accessible to me. Some of them, <laughs> some, I, I, most of them, most of them, you know, um, are are very accessible. They're often very lengthy. They have great pictures. Um, you know, they go into a lot of detail. So so just to sort of follow the story again. So you've got the 75 to 100 people that you have requested a more in-depth paper. Sure. They add another five pages to the original proposal, essentially fleshing it out in ways that are interesting to to NIAC. Right. You you get those papers and then you and make then, a decision on who. Well, we actually bring in um, technical panel reviewers at that point. So each each of the full proposals is reviewed by at least three different technical reviewers that are you know experts in in that field and i've we've had people that have been center directors in those panels and things like that it's just an unbelievable resource of folks are interested in NIAC. it's fun to review these things so yeah we can get really good people to come in at that point after we've winnowed down to say 30 or 40 then we take that to the source selection official after we check with the rest of NASA quickly, we have points of contact at the Science Mission Directorate, at the Human Exploration and Operations Mission Directorate, and at the Aeronautics Mission Directorate. We check with them to make sure that this research is not necessarily interesting to them, but doesn't overlap with something that's already been studied. And we've had people come to it, and we've, we've gone to people at that point. Yeah, I funded something like that back in 1987. And yeah, I, there's a video of it online. Here you go. And, and yeah. oh, well, I guess we can't, can't select that one then because it's already been done. But uh, other than that, if they're interested in it, that's great. If they're really uninterested in it, that might be great too. <laughs> it depends on what the subject is. Yeah. I think of one particular one which is uh, human torpor, which yep. is, um, yeah, uh, no, we've always heard stories about cryosleep. We're going to cryosleep ourselves to the next star or whatever. Nobody had ever studied it on an engineering uh, scale. What would a spacecraft look like? Would it actually be lighter? Would it be more efficient? Or would all of the cryosleep stuff take up so much space and be so inten intensive that it would actually be less efficient? And uh, so... Um, Trying to remember, SpaceWorks Engineering, I think, is the name. Right. Of the yeah. I, I did a video on that. Yeah, it's it's a really neat one. Uh, I can tell you that there were folks in the the you know office, the health and um, I'm trying to remember the name. The uh, I'm sorry, I can't remember right now. But the the basically the astronaut doctors. Yes. Were, were not very pleased with this one. They didn't they didn't think it was necessary. They didn't think it would it would be useful. And they didn't think astronauts would agree to, you know, having a, a peg tube in their t stomach or anything like that. And they might very well be right about all of that. Yeah. But it's interesting to have something like that up on the shelf so that we have a reference for the rest of, you know, time to see what that would look like. So, so you've got your your seventy five hundred people yep. who have come back. You then request, you then offer them to compete for that stage one. So they. So you is that how, is that when you you launch the stage one is based on that more okay. in depth report? Yeah, that's correct. So okay. um, let me let me go over from the beginning again because I keep getting sidetracked. Just like uh, so we get you know two to three hundred proposals depending on the year. Uh, we winnow at the pro at the program office. We winnow those down to seventy five to one hundred and ten somewhere around there. Then we have expert panel reviews on the eight page proposal. We invite the seventy five to one hundred and ten to give us eight page proposals. We review those with expert technical panels. <coughs> we check for duplication on any that have not been eliminated by the technical panels. And we go to the source selection official who chooses the final 16 right. out, of, out of the top contenders. And, and that's, then we offer those folks the, the grant, uh, which is $125,000 over nine months, sort of a quick turn of the analysis crank to see if their idea is actually feasible. And That's so what are you looking for them to deliver in that mm -hmm. in that nine months and 125? And I mean, just to sort of compare, like that is that is the amount of money that you would spend for a researcher or two to spend full time 
doing the math, thinking about a problem and -hmm. actually writing up a report. So, I mean, anyone who is out looking for for fundraising, that's a Mm -hmm. reasonable amount of money to be able to take your idea to the next to the next level. So what are you looking for them to to report for you? What What do you want them to bring back? So essentially what we want is a, here's this neat idea that I had and it's going to work or it's not going to work. And here's why. And then here's the documented technical procedure that I went through to get to that answer. Right. And I can think of a couple that have been failures. Uh, it's quote unquote failures, right? Because frankly, in an early stage technology development program like this one, uh, finding things that don't work is appropriate. Right. Yes. We've only spent $125,000. Let's not go down that rabbit hole um, for the rest of time and spend billions uh, to make a spacecraft. Let's let's put this on the shelf and let people look at the research and try and do better next time. Uh, but that's basically it. We're looking for a report. I, I think of this as on the level of a master's degree at a technical university, anywhere between 50 and 150 pages, uh, you know, t- describing the idea, telling us whether or not it might work. And then why and how they got to that answer. Right. And again, when you look at any one of these of these reports, you're seeing um, like, you know, I can think of examples as well, like, say, the people always want to know if there's some way to uh, make an artificial magnetosphere around a spaceship to protect astronauts from from cosmic radiation. And so someone is doing the math, they're figuring out what kind of magnetic field would be required, how much energy that's going to require, what the various Gauss levels you're going to get at different sizes, what could be the potential side effects, comparing that to existing materials and coming with an overall analysis of what it of what it might take and what are all the best what are some configurations of putting out the coils that will do the trick and so right. you know that and then that is all encapsulated into the final report that's delivered to mm-hmm. to Nike mm-hmm. and as you said you take those things you put them up on the shelf so that's we've got you to phase 1 right. how what happens now to go on to phase two? Do you open it back up again? Or mm-hmm. are you actually just following up with the people who delivered phase ones to go on to phase two? So to we open it up again, but only to people who have successfully completed a phase one final report. So once you've completed that, then you can propose. Now, what we do is we allow people to propose multiple times. So if they don't succeed one year, they can learn from the comments from the technical panel reviews improve their proposals and then try and propose again. There's one, one gentleman, uh, I shouldn't say also that we're open to anyone in the United States legally. You don't actually have to be in the aerospace field. We had one, uh, one guy, Anthony Longman, he's an architect. He's not, a, a, an, a, you know, aerospace type person. He doesn't have an engineering degree. He's an architect. And he said, you know, uh, there's this guy back in the 60s, Buckminster Fuller. He (laughs) created this thing called tensegrity. And nobody knows really how to use tensegrity. And so you find all this art made out of tensegrity. And that's it. That's really, that's that's about it. Um, But I think you should make spacecraft out of it. And the reason why is you can make the structure as much as 93% less massive with the same amount of strength. And that's a big deal. And he proposed and he failed and he proposed again and he failed. And, and by the way, he called me and, and talked to me after each time. And I tried to coach him in between yep. legal for me to talk to people. As long as there's no open competition, send me an email. I'm happy to talk to people and help you understand the program and how to propose to it and all of that. Anyway, on the third try, he won an award for a tensegrity habitat that might and this is a big might, uh, be two-thirds the volume of the entire International Space Station at first launch. Right. It's really an incredible thing. And what's been amazing to me is watching him, because he took three tries to propose to Phase 2 before he won a Phase 2, and he's wrapping up the Phase 2 now. So we'll have a new report from him up online fairly soon, although he's a co-I on the second one, and not, a, not the PI, not the fellow, the NIAC fellow. Um, Dr. Robert Skelton is the NIAC fellow. So do you have a set number of, of phase twos that you're looking to fill like a set budget or, or is it, no, is it kind of uh, just whatever you, whatever you folks think is appropriate to whatever's ready? We, we try to choose stuff that 
is really exciting as well as almost ready and uh, for the phase twos. There's still a lot of risk left in these things. And what we do is we try and time all three phases of the program to, to have selection on the same day. So that if we have a particularly strong group of phase twos, we can choose one extra phase two and two fewer phase ones, or you know maybe an extra phase three and, and fewer phase twos and phase ones. Or if it's a great initial crop, we might choose 20 phase ones. It's, uh, it's a really interesting little thing. And it's up to the source selection official who is one step above me uh, at headquarters. So Right. Um, and then the, the new addition that you've added in the last couple of years is this idea of the phase three. So what distinguishes the phase three from the phase two projects? So the phase two is kind of a unicorn. It's hard to explain. I like to start out talking about phase threes by saying phase three doesn't really exist. It, <laughs> the goal is to create so much interest in phase one and phase two that in fact you don't need a phase three. Someone like like the balloon reflector um, can pick up and run with your phase two at the end of the phase two, or maybe even at the end of the phase one if it's just really that exciting. A phase three is for something really difficult that is obviously good to do. And we have two right now. One is Dr. Joel Cercel. He's talking about mining asteroids. And uh, he has set up a sort of a, a preliminary small spacecraft that's CubeSat size that would be able to launch its own synthetic asteroid and then go catch it and mine it and then use the water that it gets to thrust around to sort of a full proof of concept. Yep. But something like that still, even though it's CubeSat size, is not cheap. And there's too much risk for the science mission directorate or for the human mission directorate or, or even the space technology mission directorate to go forward with such a, you know, maybe it's a $10 million mission, maybe it's a $6 million mission. Um, and so we're sort of trying to bridge the gap with this phase three. The idea is he can get enough done in the phase three, reducing the risk that someone will come along and say, hey, you've gotten most of the way to that phase, uh, that, that prototype mission. Why don't we throw in $4 million and we'll, we're going to try and do that mission. Right. It's really exciting. And he actually uh, partnered with another company, Momentous Space, uh, and they they threw in a million dollars of their own money, uh, paying their own workers. So it's an in-kind contribution, uh, but so that it's already three million of nominally a six million dollar mission. If everything went went well, they're going to be half done, and they're going to eliminate a whole bunch of risk uh, before they're done with their two years. Our second one is a little bit closer in in a way uh, than asteroid mining. Uh, uh, Red Whitaker, Dr. Whitaker, up at um, um, he's a yeah Cornell, no Pittsburgh. What? Um, why am I having Carnegie Mellon? Carnegie, Carnegie Mellon. That's right. Yeah, he's yeah. part of the robotics. He's the one who worked yeah. on the uh, on one of the uh, DARPA uh, self driving vehicles. Yeah. Yep. He's the one that won the DARPA challenge. Yeah. He also was the one as a fresh out from college. He he, he went to the um, Department of Energy after Three Mile Island and said that he could map Three Mile Island's radiation levels really a lot cheaper than Westinghouse Corporation could. And he actually won that that bid and he did more than just map it. He did a really great job. And that, I mean, when you start your career off with something like that, you're bound to do even more. And he has. Uh, he, his current push, he's he's the founder of a uh, one of the companies, Astrobotic, that won a CLIPS Award Commercial Lunar Payload Services. So the idea is that NASA can put out a bid to these you know, eight or so different companies that have promised that they will be able to land things on the moon. And then they will compete, those eight companies will compete for each one of these things and say, well, we can do it. And they're guaranteed a certain amount of money over the period of the Eclipse uh, uh, Award. He, Astrobotic, um, won an award for phase one back in 2011, actually, for pits and caves exploration yeah. so the idea was we would create a rover that would go down into these pits and caves which are very important targets not just for um science because you can see the strata as you go down through these pits and caves so you can really gain a whole lot of information about geology of of the body that you're on 
But um, it's also interesting for humans, too, because we've talked for a long time about how you might be able to use a pit or a cave or something that had a skylight in it for a human habitat. Yeah. And and so he won a phase one and a phase two, and he proposed to the phase three when it opened. And he won, but not for exactly the same thing. He's, he's doing a step in between uh, spelunking into a cave. He's going to land a rover on Eclipse platform. And this, by the way, is a Carnegie Mellon Award, um, not an Astrobotic Award. But um, land a, a rover on the near a crater, drive over to the crater, and autonomously circumnavigate this crater and build a full three-dimensional model of the crater while circumnavigating the crater, all within the two-week daylight period. Right. Because we know that uh, rovers don't generally survive, even even landers often don't survive the two-week lunar night. So uh, all done autonomously um, and really an interesting mission with essentially a cube rover. I mean, I don't want to quite call it that. I think it's a 15-kilogram rover, yeah. um, very small, about the size of a, maybe a 6U cube set, something like that. Uh, and he won because he's partnered with Astrobotic, and they will actually propose the mission back to the CLIPS program. And so they will say, we can actually do this thing. And I'm hoping that NIAC can be the first program in NASA to land a rover on the moon since the you know push to go back to the moon. So that would be really exciting. So, um, I mean, and this sort of now, this conversation kind of leads into sort of the next path that I want to go into. And, you know, my experience, my observation from NIAC from afar is there are a lot of really great ideas that get proposed, very exciting, the kinds of things that really capture the imagination of the public. I mean, the whole purpose yeah. of having public relations with NASA is to show, I hope, to show the taxpayers, to show people what that money that they're giving yeah. goes into in the kinds of programs. And the, the kinds of NIAC ideas are absolutely the, some of the most exciting ideas that are out there. But at the same time, it feels like, like it's, a, it's a much more difficult mm -hmm. journey for those to go from a really amazing concept to something that's actually incorporated into existing mission hardware. Um, you know, we've talked about a couple of projects which have come a long way, but still. So do you find that that the idea gets, some pieces of the idea get absorbed into some existing mission that's already in the mm -hmm. works? Or mm -hmm. does it, or, you know, or will it actually sort of cause the germination of a new mission that maybe nobody had ever thought of because they had never thought that it was possible or yeah. reasonably inexpensive to do. So I think the answer is yes. Yeah. Which, <laughs> Sorry. which one is it trending towards? Which one is, I, is, yeah. Which one is more, more frequent? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know. Um, the example that I can think of immediately about the second where you sort of work into something that's existing is the the spheres project that was run out of MIT. Um, given enough time, I will eventually remember the person's name. The, the basic idea was that there would be these autonomous little robots that used cold gas thrusters to float around inside of the space station and do stuff and, and um, you know, interact with the astronauts. They, they remind me a little bit of the um, uh, back in Star Star Wars, the New Hope, right? Uh, episode four, when Luke Skywalker has a sort of a lightsaber practice mm -hmm. in yeah. the Millennium Falcon. This little sphere bot, right, is one running around and shooting lasers at him, and he's blocking them with it with his lightsaber. They're about that size. They're about that shape. They're pretty pretty neat. David Miller, Doctor David Miller of MIT, uh, was the PI on this. And that actually ended up being based on a little bit of NIAC work uh, that he did originally back in 1997, and then it eventually flew on the space station. It was modified and changed, and it was only the germ of the NIAC idea that ended up flying. Um, and then uh, more stuff was proposed. He proposed one on magnetic coupling and things like that. Um, but then we have the example, like I mentioned already, of the inflatable balloon reflector, which is 100% whole cloth NIAC right. and 
flying in its final configuration in 2021, uh, it'll fly as the NIAC mission. And I can think of a few others that, that it's going to be an amalgam if they ever fly, but uh, you mentioned the Venus rover. There's the clockwork Venus rover that mm -hmm. we've studied out of JPL, where it's essentially a giant wind-up clock, right? And and the wind winds it up, keeps winding it up, and it's all mechanical. The mechanical uh, uh, rover can go for for a very long time, maybe even um, years in the Venusian environment, which is very punishing. So um, if that ends up flying, though, my guess is it's going to have to have a cool electronics box. Normally we have warm electronics boxes, but this is Venus, right? Yeah. So um, it's going to have to have some electronics is my guess. It's going to have to have a camera, probably a real camera and not just a mechanical camera, but maybe. Uh, but it's going to need a way of communicating back to the Earth. And that's almost certainly going to have to be uh, electronic eventually. Although there are some ideas for con communicating with uh, mechanical means. Uh, but my guess is that if that flies, it's going to capture the, the, the imaginations of the Venus community. And they're going to say, hey, really, we could rove around on the surface of Venus for weeks mm -hmm. before the vehicle dies. This is worth looking at because right now the longest uh, probe that we've had survive at the surface was, I think, 36 hours. Yeah, no, yeah, one of, been, the, one of the Venera uh, landers. Yeah, and they all might have been 136 yeah. hours. And yeah, the joke but, that I always make is like half the transmissions we got back is just robotic screaming, um, <laughs> right? So yeah, exactly. So it, and so uh, that'll probably end up, you know, if it captures the imaginations of the people that are big in the Venus crowd, they're going to incorporate that into what they're already planning. Yeah, to make what they're already planning better. And I can imagine uh, other missions like the um, Titan submarine. Again, that it's pretty complicated to send a submarine to Titan. It's yeah. it might happen, In and methane. if it does, that would yeah. be really really cool. Yeah, methane ocean, right? Yeah, it would really awesome. Um, and it can do more science. But what might end up happening instead is maybe a boat. You know, yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, the a boat would work for ninety percent of the science. And yeah, I saw a sailboat idea, which I liked. Yeah, um, yeah. So um, I know that that NASA and other space agencies, they have this, there's always this balance, right, between going with tried and true technologies, chemical rockets, um, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. existing RCS thrusters, uh, yep even certain kinds of toilets that are used in the International sure. Space Station, like there are, there are known ways to do this. Yeah. And a lot of times I think about technologies like ion engines, and it took a real leap of even though that technology had been developed, and it was yeah. tested in the lab, and it was really shown that ion engines worked like a charm. It required yep. a, a very innovative spacecraft, it was the Deep Space One spacecraft, right. that with a whole bunch of different test suites on board that somebody yep. was finally okay we'll put an ion engine to see if this works and now the ion engine you know every spacecraft is being considered to put an ion engine because why not right all yeah. the starlinks have ion engines like they make yeah. a ton of sense if you want to yep. move in space you add an ion engine so on the one hand you've got all these innovative ideas that sit on the fan they sit on the shelf mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. mission planners are too nervous to add this kind of technical risk to their missions. Yeah. But then on the other hand, you've got things like the James Webb Space Telescope and the Space Launch System, which are, which are years late, billions of dollars over budget. And one of the main reasons of that is because there was a tremendous amount of technical risk that was yep. introduced, knowingly introduced into the project that you that they knew that creating a gigantic fold out sun shield, a a rocket at the scale of the space launch system. That was technical risk. And mm -hmm. what do you know? Big surprise, technical risk introduces higher budgets, longer time frames. And so it's kind of like, like it feels to me watching this whole thing unfold. I always see two conversations happen again and again, which is why doesn't NASA take any risks and NASA takes too many risks, <laughs> right? Yep. Yep. You're so, right. So what? So what is the solution to that? How do you well, take more and less risks? Whatever yeah. it is, take right the right amount of risks. 
Well, and, and technology development is a real risk, right? Because it's uh, people, I, I did a report for quite a while back in 2005 uh, for research and technology portfolio planning within the agency. And in that report, we, we looked at how the incentives are completely different. But what's really interesting to me is that the technologists speak a different language than the mission planners, okay? And the project managers. The technologists will come in and I can get four times the performance and I can do this and that and the other. And the, the, the mission manager, the project manager says, whoa, whoa, whoa. How much does it weigh? How big is it? Uh, you know, is it going to fit in my box? How much power does it use and how much data does it produce? That's all I care about because go talk to the scientists as if they want something, they'll tell me, you know, and, and there are ways of getting these people to sit down across a table and, getting them to talk the same language that are very effective, I think. There's some folks around the agency that have been doing it for dozens of years very successfully. I think of JPL's Steve Prusha primarily for that. Uh, he's, he's integrated new technologies faster uh, than anyone else that I've seen. But surprisingly, the Naval Research Laboratory is also very good at it. They, they apply new technologies on every bird. But before we go on, I do have to say, you know, when I worked at JPL back in 03, um, I was working on MSL and we were tracking 33 new technologies going on to MSL. And uh, on the one hand, yes, uh, we're afraid to take new risks. On the other hand, we take new risks all the time. And yeah, they can get the system to be sort of wrapped around the axle. And I'm not sure how to do that better other than to fail fast and fail right. forward, right? You, you do it when your team is small. One of the challenges that, um, you now I've never been a part of, of James Webb, so everything that I say here, take it with the grain of salt that it deserves. But um, one of the challenges is that they were designing new technologies as part of the phase A mission. So phase A is when you do the mission definition, Phase B is when you're sort of getting ready to build. C is build. D is um, assemble and fly. Uh, phase E is operations. Uh, system NASA Systems Engineering Handbook 101. Yeah, it's all downloadable online. But um, the the way that the mission was designed is that they were going to have a lot of different technologies being developed while they were doing the design. And every time that the technology doesn't come through, then you have to redesign slightly. You have a large design team during uh, uh, phase B, and they were still having problems with the technologies, and they would have to stretch out. And then phase C comes, and they go to build, and you probably heard that when they went to extend their sunshade, it, it got a tear in it and everything. Well, now that now you've got the entire team, and you have to stop assembly and test while the entire team is working to fix everything. And it's all interrelated. I, yeah. I once had a chance to ask Pete Teisinger. Uh, he was the project manager for the MER rovers um, while I was working on the MSL rovers. I said, Why don't we just fly more MER rovers and put different instruments on them? And he said, well, first of all, we're not a spacecraft factory, okay? We make one-of-a-kind amazing pieces of technological art and send them to other planets. That's what we do at JPL. Okay, understood. Uh, but second of all, they're so finely optimized that if you change anything about those instruments, we essentially have to do a full redesign of the system anyway because it's going to rattle through the system and everything depends on everything. And yeah. so... You, know, you talk to a loads person and you say, well, if I made this change here, what would happen? And the loads person will say, I mean, almost every time, well, some of the loads are going to go up and some of the loads are going to go down. I've got to go run my finite element model to tell you what the answer is. <laughs> so, you know, and, and with everything depending on everything else, uh, James Webb especially had a real challenge to get everything to come together and bolt together and yeah. have all the bolt holes in the right place because the technology development was so deeply embedded within the, the mission development timeline. Now, lesson learned, try and have your technologies to TRL six before you enter phase B of your mission design, if you can, and that helps a lot, right? Um, but I remember I, I got the chance to work on the exploration systems architecture study in 2005 under Mike Griffin. Dr. Griffin uh, was the administrator. And um, he, he, 
flat out said, look, we've been to the moon. We don't need any new technologies to go back to the moon. Don't do any of them unless you see real reason to do it. And, you know, it's, it's funny. Uh, computers have changed a little bit in the last 50 years. And everything else has too, including, uh, you know, well, everything. You can't use the same re-entry material because it's bad for the environment. So bringing the capsules back in and having that plasma ball around as the astronauts are re-entering Earth's atmosphere, well, that plasma ball is carrying away a lot of the material from the heat shield. And so if it's bad for the environment, it's getting up into the upper atmosphere and going all over the world. Can't use it anymore. Have to redevelop a new one. Guess what? Technology development. And I mean, it goes on and on and on mm-hmm. uh, for for Apollo. And we ended up reducing the budget some under Griffin, um, but not a lot. So, I mean, at the same time that, say, NASA is doing its developments, there is this real revolution in rocketry that's going on around the world. A lot mm-hmm. of this, just these mm-hmm. concepts of, of reusable rockets. I mean, right. the Falcon 9, uh, how it's able to reuse uh, boosters, obviously the Falcon Heavy, which uses, I think, 80, reuses 80% plus mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. entire rocket with the three boosters, yep. just the upper yep. stages is being disposed. Um, and then who knows what i mean i guess maybe you know what's going on with uh with new glenn um and that's no. <laughs> just the the tip of the iceberg there are a bunch of other um you know reusable rocket companies yeah. working on stuff as well as what's going on in europe and going on in china like this is if you don't make a reusable rocket in 20 years from now um you know it's it's going to be kind of too late um or sooner. Um, and then you're looking yeah. at the possibility of a thing like Starship where, you know, this thing is going to launch, you know, one Starship in theory is going to be able to launch more than the sum uh, capability <laughs> of all rockets ever yeah. launched ever in the history of humanity. And this is just going to be yeah. one and they're going to build a hundred, whatever. Right. So, so when, and you must just, right. you must just drool, you must just salivate over the potential because a lot of the yeah. times it's that launch cost that just defines mm-hmm. whether or not you can take these kinds of risks. What mm-hmm. does dramatically dropping launch costs mm-hmm. do to the kinds of projects that you're thinking about? Well, I've often um, pontificated on this subject, so you'll have to forgive me if I go on. Yeah, uh, well, we've got like 13 minutes at the most, oh, but try not to use it all because I'd like to get some some other questions in edgewise. But yeah, absolutely. Okay. What? How does it? Because sure. I mean, I think well, people always. Sorry, just I was going to say one last thing before I let you yeah, just sure. turn you loose is that people always complain to me. They're like, "Oh, you know, SpaceX is going to eat NASA's lunch, right?" No, NASA is SpaceX's biggest customer. And it, the more low-cost providers that that more more low-cost rockets that NASA that SpaceX can bring to NASA, NASA will buy them, and then yeah. fly more missions because they'll be able to fly twice as many missions or three times as many missions. So, yep. so don't worry yep. about anybody eating anybody's lunch. Like this yeah. is a this is a bargain basement sale price that NASA will yeah. will absolutely uh, take advantage of. But yeah, so w- how does that change some of your thinking? So I I used to say. Uh, a lot of the times that we keep solving the wrong problem really, really well. You know, I mean, astronauts need radiation protection. And so we bring all this um, plastic up to try and put put it in, in between the astronauts. And, you know, we make things heavier and all of that. Well, gosh, if you could just make a habitat that, um, you know, looks kind of like a Stanford Taurus, okay? Uh, if you could if you could bring up enough mass to make a stand for Taurus and rotate it for gravity, right? Uh, it's relatively stable because it's a Taurus uh, in the rotation. You bring dirt or chew up some asteroids if you can, right? And put that dirt on the inside. Well, now you're blocking quite a lot of the radiation right there. If you can line the hull with water, you're doing it on all sides at that point, right? And, um, if it's a large enough habitat, you can grow your own food. And so you're closing the life support loop where we keep looking at how to close the life support loop with chemicals or with better machineries. And well, gosh, the earth has a closed life support loop, we hope. And um, so if you could lift enough mass with a new paradigm of a spacecraft, you could solve most of the problems that NASA has been worried about for 50 years. Yeah one fell swoop. 
But getting people to think that way is an entirely different challenge. And that's what Anthony Longman's uh, habitat has turned into is sort of a let's solve all of those problems. And uh, I hope that he gets a chance to find out more about the New Glen because I, I don't know much about it at all. Uh, but but he knows people who know people who probably know something. And uh, one launch from that might be sufficient or a Starship launch might be sufficient to create a whole habitat. And if Joel Cercel is off mining asteroids for water, he's going to have a whole bunch of regolith ready to line these spacecraft. And uh, we are two paradigm shifts away, or three if you count the launch cost that you're talking about as the first one, uh, from large colonies in space forevermore. I mean, right. it's really, we're really that close. And it, it might be 50 years, it might be 100 years, or it might be 10. I can't tell anymore. Right. I thought that it was going to be 50 to 100 years w before Anthony Longman got any traction whatsoever. And he said, oh, yeah, we're, we're talking to billionaires about buying flats. You know, I mean, they, they don't mind spending $10 million for a flat in space as long as they can get to and from it. Really easily. Well, gee, I had never thought of that. That's really brilliant. Very cool. Um, you got a flat there for me? Uh, no, probably <laughs> yeah. not. Uh, but but Spare yeah, bedroom. yeah, exactly. I'll, I'll sleep on the bunk bed. That's fine. Yeah. Um, the 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 challenge though is getting those people is getting all the all people to to reframe their thinking. Those paradigm shifts are pretty wild shifts, but it all starts with being able to lift all of that mass inexpensively. I have a friend, um, he's in the uh, chief budget office, uh, code B is what they used to call it. And he uh, had a graph that he could in three minutes explain why launch prices were staying as high as they were in the 2000s. And what would happen as soon as somebody provided one low cost vehicle and suddenly there's a, real push to get everybody lower cost. And it had to do with the Department of Defense needing the high reliability that they need for the Milstars as well as everything else, right? Um, and, and human launches from NASA having to be very high reliability. Well, once you can start building stuff that you don't care if it blows up and you make it cheap, you get better at it, uh, you don't blow it up anymore, and you gain the reliability through both um, repetition and reuse, right? Which is what's happening yeah. as we see. So you mentioned uh, a couple of paradigms. So I've been sort of going on about a bunch of paradigms on this channel. And I wonder if we were thinking about the same paradigm. So the, the first one is that idea of reduced cost of yeah. launch. The, mm -hmm. the second one is the idea of resource acquisition from space, yep. ISRU, in-situ resource yep. utilization, pulling, as you say, yep. water from, from space, regolith, mm -hmm. uh, water, uh, heavy metals, all kinds of things. And then the third one is space-based manufacturing, actually constructing and building things, assembling, mm -hmm. constructing yeah. things in space. Um, you know, things like what Made in Space is doing with their, yep. their work yep. with the Arcanaut, um, you know, mm -hmm. this idea that you could, as you say, take a, a um, I mean, you could take water and carbon dioxide, turn it into methane, turn it into mm -hmm. plastic, yep. turn that into, you know, car from carbon and water, you can make plastic. And then you yep. can be turning that into struts for a space telescope yep. of any size. Yep. And at yep. no point did any of this stuff come anywhere from planet Earth. And you're right. just building this stuff up in space. And, yep. and I feel like, like we're going to be entering an age where rockets are no longer necessary because... Yeah. All you need to do is, like, the people will want to fly to space, but everything else will come from space. Nothing else yep. holds a candle to the cost. Well, and, and what's really funny, we had one gentleman, Mark Cohen, did a study for um, robotic asteroid prospecting. And he did a full economic analysis uh, at the time of what would make a profit in space if you were able to move things around. The answer was water. Water is important enough that you can actually make a profit by mining water and bringing it with you. Well, by golly, it's pretty cheap to pull some of that carbon along with you or just plain old regolith. You don't have to do any processing at all. Just bring the broken regolith with you. It's free <laughs> yeah. because you're bringing all of that water, which is what you're selling. And now you've got this other resource that's free that you can 
and they're not going to give it away, but pennies on the dollar, so to speak, right? I mean, it's not not the same thing as the water. So you might actually be able to create that in-space manufacturing platform pretty easily once maybe Joel Sircell or someone else manages to start pulling water out of asteroids. So. Yeah, and it, and I'm, I've heard there, I mean, some of the new discoveries with OSIRIS-REx, when OSIRIS-REx was coming to Bennu, it was getting sort of smacked in the face by debris that was coming off because water vapor was sublimating yeah. out into space from it. So there's, turns out there's a lot of water in these things. You just have to grind them up and, and, and get at it. So yeah. the, the inner solar system is actually a lot wetter than than anyone ever anticipated. So it's so it's it's good news for all of that. So have there been ideas that you wish somebody would propose? Are there themes that you're that you're excited about that you just haven't seen enough thought put to them yet? Or you know, it's interesting. Um, no, not really. After seeing all of the different areas of technology development, basically NASA divides it up into 15 different technology areas. We get stuff proposed from almost every single one every year. Uh, People are really creative and they're ahead of me. Usually I'm lagging one one year. Uh, So we get the new proposals in and Hey, you know, I'm seeing a lot of 3D printing. This is 2012 or 2013. 3D printing in space. Who's this made in space company? They put in a couple. And yeah, yeah they, they, they won uh, uh, one of, an award for a really neat idea of possibly creating little cities in space. Interesting uh, side note, you talk about rabbit holes. There's a, a Disney show called Miles from Tomorrowland. And one of the bad guys lives on an asteroid that the author's modeled after the made in space asteroid not you know it's just inspired by directly inspired by that particular concept our program manager uh, met some of the writers for that show at a uh, conference and and got into talking to them and they did a little idea exchange and they 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 borrowed that idea and put it up it's pretty neat that's awesome Um, yeah it's really cool it's a good show if you have kids but um I mean, the. I would say something like von Neumann machines or whatever the, the correct term is, but we get proposals on that, just haven't really seen them uh, uh, good enough to be proposed. Self-replicating. You want to see right. some self-replicating robots. It's funny. I'd love um, to see that. I, I, I worked for the X Prize for sure. a, a couple of years. Um, yeah. I was, and we were doing a sort of an online platform where anybody could could essentially propose their own. It's Hero X. They still do a lot of work with with uh, with NASA. Um, and the I was the project. I was the I was the product manager for this for the software platform. And and so as a test, I put together the self replicating robot challenge, which was that I wanted people Ooh. to. Whoever could make the robot make the most of itself the next year, um, you know, each mm-hmm. time we would run a challenge and have robots try to build themselves, then whoever nice. could get the farthest along would would win the prize. So, so now that I know that that's you know that's in your thinking, uh, I'll uh, I'll see yeah. what I can do to to get that to crank it again because it would be. I mean, that's the key, right? If you can get. Right. M- robots building robots out in space out of yeah. parts from space then yeah. it just all takes off uh jason this has been absolutely fascinating and i hope this gives people a chance who are listening and as you said they're in the aerospace community or maybe they're not but they want to be able to propose great ideas to nasa and to the to the NIAC program and sort of help that technology find its way this is the on-ramp so for people who are trying to think about calendars what is the next big date that they should be keeping an eye out for? So June, uh, probably the second week of June is when we will uh, release our solicitation. Uh, The other thing is in September, which has already passed, but obviously next year, uh, we have what we call the NIAC Symposium. And what that is, is is we have uh, all of the fellows come and come together at a big meeting that we open to the public and we have them present their status to the program office publicly, and we live stream it. That's so awesome. you can actually go and take a look on live stream at past years, 
and um, and see the keynote speeches and see all of these technologists talking about it. And so you can come to these meetings. So our next one, we're hoping to be in Tucson, Arizona. Um, and and but it'll be live streamed as well and so that's a really good highlight of the year to come take a look at that wonderful well we'll put links to the to the NIAC program in the show notes for this um and that's sort of a good starting place i, I know for people to want to sort of find everything else so uh jason thank you so much for taking the time oh, to you. to chat with us today uh and so i hope for the people who are who are familiar with the content on my channel, now you know one of my biggest sources, <laughs> one of my secret uh, recipes for how I get so many of these ideas. They are NIAC programs. And uh, so whatever happens, never ever cancel the program again, I because <laughs> I won't have any more content. So, uh, so thanks oh, for everything boy. you guys are doing. Well, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. All right, take care. Thanks everybody. Um, next week, uh, it's probably gonna be at a non-standard time as well. I think I'm interviewing some folks from the aerial spacecraft. So stay tuned on that. Uh, thanks everyone for watching today. Uh, and we'll see you all next week. All right, I'll stop the stream.